Good morning, Indelible Grace Church. Uh, before we began this recording, or uh, before we began the service, we were praying, and uh, Nate prayed, this, he, he said this, he said, uh, God, give us new, fresh and new taste buds to receive your word, and all the things that we're going to talk about, all the things that we sing and pray, um, it's not going to matter unless the Holy Spirit works in us and there is unless there is something supernatural, unless there's something that cannot be brought about by human hands or human smarts. And um, that's our hope is that for all of us at IGC as we're listening to this either on Facebook or on, on YouTube, that we would receive with fresh taste buds the goodness of the gospel, that we would know, taste and see that the Lord is good. So uh, we're going to receive his word today, uh, and we've been going through the Gospel of John, and as we've been going through it, we're, we're now at the point where Jesus comes face to face with the authorities for the final time before he's sentenced to death, and throughout his ministry, there's been a, there's been a lot of suspicion, a lot of fear from the uh, religious and political figures. They felt threatened by him because their institutions are at stake, their control of the system and of the people is at risk. And just like all whoever are confronted with Jesus, one of one of the dangers that we're all prone to forget is just how threatening Jesus is, not just to political or religious figures or institutions. We forget just how threatening Jesus is to us and to our, our own identity. And in today's passage, we're going to see how Jesus forces us to question the things that matter to us. And my hope this morning is that we'll, we'll see the heart of Christ for his people in this story, the, the arrest, the betrayal of Jesus, so that even when what we hold dear is threatened, we need not fear, nor do we need to lose heart. So today's passage is the story of his arrest, and this is in John chapter 18. You can follow along in your Bibles. John chapter 18 Verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and coughed his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of God. So as we look at this passage today, I want us to see two things in it. Number one, what is happening in the garden? And number two, the purpose of Jesus. 
what's happening in the garden, and number two, the purpose of Jesus. So let's look at our point in the story right now. If you have some familiarity with the life of Christ, there is a good chance that you know the name of the garden where Jesus is arrested. You may know that it's called Gethsemane. And yet, as we look at the Gospel of John, we're not told the name. It's a curious thing we see in this text, or what we don't see in this text. We're not told the name of the garden. Why is that? This is the final night of Jesus. This is the place where he pleads with the Father to, to, the Father to take the cup away from him. The garden is the last place he'll stand as a free man. And yet John doesn't tell us the name of this garden. But look at the text. He tells us the name of Malchus, a character who appears only once in the Bible, and we never hear from him again. Why would you mention such a detail, but not the name of such an important place? Why? There are a few other oddities about, well, the Gospel of John, there's a lot of oddities in the Gospel of John, but a few oddities that I want to point out to you. Um, number one, the first one, Jesus doesn't give the name of his, John doesn't give us the name of Jesus' mother. We have to go to the other Gospels to find out that her name is Mary. Now, this seems like a pretty important detail to admit from the, most, from the life of the most well-known person to ever live. When John mentions a name or when he doesn't mention a name, it's, it's for a specific purpose. John is very intentional when he writes his gospel. John doesn't give us the name of his mother because the gospel of John, in the, the gospel of John plays a unique role among the gospels. And it's to show the relationship of Jesus with his father. I've, we've mentioned this a few times, but toward the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, we're told the purpose of the entire Gospel, and it's this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, when he's omitting this detail, the name of Mary, he wants us to think of Jesus in light of his relationship with the Father. Jesus' mission is to carry out the Father's will. His delight is the glory of his Father. And that's why John doesn't give us the name of his mother. It's to make the contrast between Jesus under his mother and Jesus under his Father. Another example, and this goes along again with the purpose of John that he writes in John chapter 20. John gives us the name of Nicodemus, this well-known religious leader. He knows the scriptures, he knows the traditions, of the of Judaism, and he's confronted with Jesus as a person, not as a concept, and he's forced to make a decision to believe or not to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, why are we given the name of Nicodemus? We're given his name because Nicodemus was a real person, and he acts as a representative of all of us. Because we too, like Nicodemus, we must decide whether or not we will believe and follow Jesus. So the purpose of the Gospel of John is that we would believe and have life in his name, just as we heard. So in the Gospel of John, as you read through it, remember this, that the details matter a lot. John is using the detail or lack of detail to communicate something to you and me. And this is the case about the story of the arrest of Jesus. We're placed in the scene of Jesus' arrest, which is the garden. 
Why are we not given the name of the garden? It's because John doesn't want us to think only of this garden, but of another garden. Think back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, this is where where it happened. It happened in a garden. The Garden of Eden is where not only they, but all of humanity rebelled and fell. And what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis was the beginning of untold and endless misery and death. And as we read today's text, we should think back to that garden. Even if the story of Genesis is unfamiliar to you, you don't need to look very far to see the effects of what happened that day in the Garden of Eden. The disintegration of society, racial and economic injustice, broken marriages, cancer, coronavirus, the the deterioration of the physical world, all the pain and sadness and anxiety that we feel began in the Garden of Eden. So John puts us in another garden today. And he wants us to know that it's on this evening, the evening of Jesus' arrest and betrayal, the evening before Jesus is put to death, that what happened in the first garden is going to be undone. Starting in the second garden, this is the beginning of the reverse of the fall in the first garden. Adam's disintegrating work in Genesis is slowly reversing. And in this garden, Jesus is reintegrating all things. If you're familiar with the Easter story, you know that Jesus was buried in and raised to life again in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And the Gospels tell us, where is the tomb? The tomb is placed in a garden. The life of Jesus fits into the imagery of the garden. In his commentary, Arkent Hughes contrasts the two gardens, and he has a list. I'm going to read the list off to you. The first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In tonight's garden that we're reading about, Jesus begins his work of overcoming sin. In Eden, Eden, Adam fell. In this garden, Jesus rises up and conquers. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In this garden, Jesus boldly presents himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In this garden, it was sheathed. And here's where I think the starkest contrast is. In the garden of Eden, Adam betrays God. But in this garden, Jesus is faithful. And this is what Paul is referring to in John in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul tells us in Romans 5, There is one original Adam, but there is another Adam to come. The story of Adam begins in a garden, and here, Jesus, the second Adam, undoes the work of the first garden in this garden. So this is how we should be thinking about today's story. Something really big is happening in this passage. 
the second Adam has come to undo the work of the first Adam. So this is the significance of the garden. We're not given the name of Gethsemane because John wants us to think about the other garden. Our second point, the purpose of Jesus. So as we read the text, the text tells us there are two groups coming after Jesus. They're all coming as one big horde. There is a detachment of Roman soldiers, and historians will tell us that there were about six or seven hundred, up to six or seven hundred soldiers headed toward the garden that evening. On top of that, there were officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, and commentators say that there could have been as many as two hundred of them. So you can imagine the clamor of hundreds of men coming toward Jesus in the gardens with their with their weapons, with the lanterns, all the sound that they're making, and how intimidating it must have been for Jesus and his disciples to be descended upon by these hundreds of armed men. This is known as the arrest of Jesus. But as we continue on in the text, as we look at what's really happening, we'll see that this is really Jesus giving himself up. In this account, we don't see Jesus showing any kind of fear or resignation. He doesn't make any attempt to evade the crowd. He situates himself where he knows Judas can find him. The text tells him this place that Judas found him was a place that was familiar to all the disciples. And this tells us something, that Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen. The men state their intentions, and Jesus knows that he's going to use this moment to show everyone, including us, that he's the one who's really in control. Look at verse 4 in the text. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus, throughout this entire account, he knows exactly what is going to happen to him. They come to arrest Jesus. And when we think of arrest, uh, what it means is that someone is being taken against their will. They don't want to be arrested. If, if you've ever read the first-hand accounts of people who have been uh, placed in handcuffs or arrested, there's a common theme of shame and embarrassment. Even if they're not guilty of the crime in which they're being uh, held for, there's a feeling of being singled out. There's a feeling of their dignity taken away from them. There's a feeling of humiliation. But this is not the case with Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that, that no one takes his life from him. Jesus intends to put his life in the hands of these men. Jesus will not be a passive character in this story. Jesus is telling them, I'm the main character and you are in my story. I call the shots, not you. So the text tells us, the soldiers and officers, they, they ask Jesus, they, they tell him that they're looking for Jesus, and Jesus says, I am he. I am he. But this is no simple identification. There is a weight behind his words. As we look at the text, we know that he's really saying, I am, I am. The word he was inserted for clarity, but Jesus is saying, I am. The Greek in this passage is ego, a me. 
I am. This is the name that God gave his people in Exodus 3. This is the self-revelation of God to his people. And here when Jesus says, I am, he's invoking that title. And the men, they are stunned. The text tells us that they all fall over. Hundreds of men falling over at the name, I am. In the Bible, when people are knocked down, this is a common reaction to the revelation of divinity. And that's exactly what's happening here. The the authorities and the soldiers, they come to the garden, and they're, they're prepared to take Jesus by force. Why the hundreds of men? Because they think that force may be necessary. But here, Jesus shows them that not only is it not necessary but that it's impossible to take him by any means, whether by force or anything else. And I think as we we consider what is happening in this text, there are two things we need to consider. Number one, that Jesus reveals himself and that he will place himself in their hands on his own terms. And number two, that Jesus is not just a troublemaker, he's not just a rabble-rouser, he's not just an inspirational figure. Jesus is God himself. After they pick themselves up, he asked them again. And I think this is to, to underscore that they're playing the game on his terms. He asked them again, who do you seek? And he again identifies himself. I am. He's the one in control. And if you look at the text, this is repeated three times. In verse 5, in verse, uh, verse 6, in verse 8. I am appears three times in this text. And, and, and in the Bible, a three-time repetition is meant to be emphatic. We should be paying attention when something is repeated three times. Remember in Isaiah 6, God is not holy. God is not holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And in this text, we should, we should be thinking Jesus is, I am, I am, I am. Jesus is revealing himself as God, a very God. Before he began his earthly ministry, before the earth was formed even, before there was such a thing as time or universe, Jesus was, I am. Long before this happened in the garden, or even before the first garden in Genesis, Jesus knew that this night would come. Jesus knew that this would happen, and there would be not one moment that is out of his hands. Let's think about the implications of this beyond the garden for just one moment. I want us to think about the character of Jesus. Consider the in-controlness of him. Let that sink in, that Jesus is in control. And let that truth stabilize you. Let that strengthen your heart. What situation are you in right now that makes you tremble? What anxieties keep you up at night? What we see here is this truth, that even in our most dire situations, we have a sovereign king. The I am knew before there was time that you would be in your situation today. 
He has been in control. He is in control now. And he will always be in control. And may this give you hope in this moment. This pandemic, this lockdown has chipped away at our physical health and our mental health. It's caused us to question so many things. It's taken so much from us. But don't let it take your hope in Jesus. Christ, the I am, is in control. One of my favorite hymns is Beams of Heaven. And uh, it contains these lines. I've, I've actually quoted this song probably five times in my time at IGC. I love these words so much. Harder yet may be the fight. Right may often yield to might. Wickedness a while may reign. Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there is a God that rules above. With hand of power and heart of love. And if I'm right, he'll fight my battle. I shall have peace one day. Indelible Grace Church, take heart. There is a God who rules above with hand of power and heart of love. He is in control. Nothing can thwart his plans or purposes. This is what we read in the prelude, in the call to worship. In Job, think of all the chaos, think of all the pain, think of all the uncertainty that Job must have faced. And what is the promise that Job is given in Job 42? That nothing can thwart the plans of a sovereign God. And as we continue on in this passage, we see what his purpose is. Look at verse 8. I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. So, it's not just Jesus in the garden. He is here with his disciples, 11 of them now. Judas has abandoned them. Jesus is talking to the authorities and they say, I'm the person you're looking for. Let these other men go. I love that John includes this little detail. This is a small preview of what he's about to do. Can you see it? Let these men go. He's willingly placing himself into the hands of the authorities. Jesus is protecting his friends. Let these men go. But take me. What is that? This is substitution. Substitution. Jesus placing himself in the hands of those who will kill him so that his friends can be safe. But we have his disciple Peter. Peter doesn't yet understand what's going on. What does he do? He draws his sword, he lunges at Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. If you've studied the characters of Jesus, Peter is one of the most lovable characters because he's so much like us. Impetuous Peter. He cuts off a dude's ear. It seems like such 
A foolish thing to do. Why would you do such a thing, Peter? Look around you. There are hundreds of men. What chance do you stand? Why does Jesus, why does Peter cut off the air? Why does he attack at this crowd? He does it for the same reason that you and I would have done it if we were in the crowd that day. Because we don't understand the real purposes of Jesus. The Romans and religious leaders, they come with a show of force because they think that he's a threat to their power, which he is, and they think that he can be subdued by physical might. And Peter wants to stand up for Jesus, and he's ready for this fight. He doesn't understand that Jesus is truly and completely in control in this time, and that his purposes cannot be thwarted. And Peter doesn't know that he needs what Jesus is about to do for him. Jesus responds, verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you have no idea what you need. You don't understand what I'm about to do. But my Father has an assignment for me. And Jesus says that he has a cup that he needs to take. It means that there's an assignment for him to fulfill I mentioned earlier again that, that the author John will include or omit details from the text to make a point. And at the beginning of our passage, he makes a note that Jesus and his disciples, they walked across the brook Kidron. This is in verse, verse 1. That they have to walk across this brook Kidron into the garden. Now, remember what's happening. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of John uh, for several chapters now, and, and these multiple chapters span across just one day. Um, Jesus' arrest happens during Passover. This is the biggest feast of the year for the Jews. And during Passover, each family had to sacrifice a lamb uh, that morning. And there were hundreds of thousands of families sacrificing the lambs at the Temple Mount that morning. And of course, if you're going to sacrifice an animal, there's going to be blood. And the blood has to go somewhere. So the blood went from the sewage pipes from the Temple Mount, which flowed into the brook Kidron. So you can imagine that morning, the blood of tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of, of lambs soaking the ground of the brook that morning. By noon, the blood would have dried up in the heat of the sun, but the smell of the blood would remain into the night. And John says, the disciples crossed that brook. And Jesus and his disciples, they smelled the blood. And Jesus has blood on his mind. Jesus has blood on his mind. But it's not the blood of his enemies. It's his own blood. Jesus will put himself in the hands of the authorities so that his blood will be spilled. In Peter, the sword-wielding attacker, we find someone who doesn't understand the real purpose of Jesus. Who doesn't, who doesn't understand that Jesus possesses far more power than he could ever imagine. And so Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. And the sword is a rebuke 
to all the ways, not just to Peter, but, Peter, but to all the ways that we try to take things into our own hands. All the ways we try to find peace and security in our lives. This command to Peter is a rebuke of our aspirations of personal safety and economic prosperity and political power. These are the things that the nations rage over. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? This is a question that has been asked throughout history, and we should be asking of it ourselves in 2020. Why do we rage? Why do we take the sword into our own hands? It's because we don't believe that Jesus is in in control. We don't believe that he's strong enough. And this is a rebuke even to those of us in the church. Those of us, like myself, who try to make things happen without seeking guidance from God. This is a rebuke to us, not just to Peter. No one really understands what's at stake here. It's not politics. It's not quality of life. It's not ideologies or worldviews. What's at stake here are the lives and the eternal destinies of all who will ever believe in him. There's so much more going on in this garden than what we can see with our own eyes. And that's why Jesus says he must drink the cup that the Father has for him. What is this cup? Jesus is referring to the cup of God's wrath, or uh, an even more evocative image we get is in Isaiah, where it says that there is a cup of staggering The purpose of Jesus is to take that cup, to drink the cup of God's wrath, to be a substitute in our place so that we will not have to drink that cup of his wrath. And this is the gospel. This is what everything points to. And hopefully everything that we say as a church will point to this, that we've all tried to live our lives according to our own desires and wisdom. We don't want the life that our creator offers us. But there is no life apart from him. There is no true life apart from him. And we choose death every time that we choose our own ways. And the consequence is that we've earned anger, the wrath of God on our sin. We've earned death. And we should be the one drinking this cup. But God offers us a way. He gives us his son to live the perfectly obedient life that we should have lived. And he will drink the cup of wrath that God has given him. And because he does that, we do not have to die. This is the most important thing for you and I. This is the most important thing for our church. To escape the wrath of God and to take hold of the gift of life that Jesus offers us. This is what's going on in this passage. We have so many problems as individuals. We are worn down and burdened by anxieties and temptations and disease and sin and conflict. As a society, we are afflicted by racism and injustice and political partisanship and economic disparity and uncertainty and confusion about our identities. And these are vitally important The Bible equips us to address these things. We need to address them. But they are not the most important thing. God will take care of it. Through the church and one day ultimately, 
when he comes again. He will one day renew all things. Evil will be punished and wrongs will be righted. All the sadness that entered into the world in the first garden will come untrue. But they are not ultimately the reason why Jesus came into the world. The biggest loss in the first garden was the loss of our relationship with God, our Creator, our Father. This is the biggest loss. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, The same is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We are all sinners, and Jesus came for us to save us. In today's story, we glimpse Jesus working all things in the garden for your good. For your good. He's moving toward the cross so that you and I will have life. I love the wording of the answer to the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you haven't read it yet, the Heidelberg Catechism is an amazing document. It is beautiful. The original language of the catechism puts it this way in the first question. The first question is this. What is thy only true com- what is thy only comfort in life and death? And among other things, this is the answer. That all things must be subservient to my salvation. All things must be subservient to my sal- salvation. And Jesus here in this garden is making all things, all people subservient to the salvation of his people, to the assignment that he has from the Father. Everything that God causes to happen, everything that he gives us, that we don't want, everything that he takes away, is for the ultimate purpose of your salvation. It's to save your life. If he takes something from you, if it's painful, if it hurts, it's because God loves you. So, indelible grace church, remember this. Let this be your comfort, that Jesus is in control of all things that he is the I am. And that if he threatens the things that you value most, or takes away the things that you hold most dear, it's only that you can have something better. Life in himself. He has substituted himself in your place. He gave his life so that you would never have to question that he only wants the very best for you. So we can put away our swords. We can trust the heart of Jesus and we can give ourselves to him. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are uh, amazed at what you did in the garden. Not only the first garden, but the second garden, where the second Adam begins the work of undoing the pain and misery of sin, God. I pray that the truths of this scripture would, would gird our hearts. I pray that it would put us on solid footing. I pray that we would put all our hope in you, the one who gave himself for us. We pray this in his name, the name of our brother Jesus Christ. Amen.